as comedic writers, a thing we really love to do is genre play in our sketches, which essentially is like playing in the movies we recognize from like a specific genre that are like look a certain way and feel a certain way, come with a certain bag of tropes, a certain rule system. Like a sci-fi movie feels a certain way and usually has certain things that happen in it. A rom-com feels a certain way. A Western feels a certain way. It like sort of allows a universal language, the visual language of these films as a universal. We go like, oh, we've all watched the same heist movies. So when I show you 15 seconds of this type of a sequence from this type of heist movie, then we're all on the same page. You get where we are. You get what movie we're in. Now we can play with those expectations and flip off of them in an exciting way. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Chris Smith and Jack DeSena, aka Chris and Jack, have been friends for ages and use their natural chemistry to make high-quality, high-concept sketch comedy for their eponymous YouTube channel. They've amassed over 100,000 subscribers, received more than 30 million views across all platforms, and won the 2020 Streamy Award for Best Indie Series. Individually, you can find Chris performing occasionally as a blue man in Blue Man Group, and Jack voicing the character Soka on Avatar The Last Airbender, as well as the lead roles in the Dragon Prince animated series on Netflix and the Lego Monkey Kid animated series on Amazon Prime. You can see them starring opposite Kelly Marie Tran in an upcoming indie feature called Me, Myself, and the Void, hitting film festivals next year. Chris, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Hey, thanks for having us. What an intro. It, it gives me nice context for my life. I'm like, oh yeah, there, there we go. That 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 orients me. That's where I'm going next. <laughs> we have been friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's genuine, as we're about to find out. So before we get to the YouTube channel that shares your names, I'd love to do something that isn't that uncommon in your sketches, which is time travel. <laughs> so let's go back to when you were both much younger looking versions of yourselves. Mm -hmm. You both did theater and clown work as kids, but your paths to Hollywood weren't identical. Chris, some call you the Tahoe juggler and not because you juggle your time between LA and South Lake Tahoe, though you did grow up there. It's because in the mid nineties at the tender age of 11, you got bored during a family vacation to Yellowstone National Park. Around that same time, I was buying the Klutz Book of Magic by John Cassidy, mm. but there was another book of Cassidy's that caught your eye at a restaurant gift shop. That was a turning point in my life, as uh, I think we've established by opening in this small <laughs> cafe that was in a town. I want to say it was Austin, Nevada. Mm. It was a small little podunk town. They got one of those over there, too. They got an Austin. I think they do. All right. Yeah. It's either Austin or Jordan, because I remember in my back of my brain, I was like, oh, it's named after one of my second cousins. <laughs> so that's all I got going there. But it was a small I was essentially on a family road trip to Yellowstone. I was bored out of my mind. We were taking an RV out on the christening trip after kind of going halvesies with another family on this used RV. And uh, as we were the family to take it out first, the RV just kept breaking down. We were the ones to learn all of the issues that it had, which basically meant instead of just like a cool cruising trip to Yellowstone, it became kind of a great tour of rest stops and repair shops between Tahoe and Yellowstone. <laughs> one of which uh, took us to a, a little diner and then there was a book called yeah juggling for the complete klutz came with three little bean bags and then at that moment it truly was just like i was so bored i asked my dad i was like hey dad would you would you get this book for me i really want to learn to juggle and then my dad famously looked me in the eye and said yeah right like you'll ever use that <laughs> and then that was the 
line in the sand. To his credit, I probably had dozens and dozens of big pitches that I had like, this is going to be my next big hobby, dad. You got to buy this. You can't deny your son his next big creative endeavor. Yeah. And then it set the stage for the next 10 days. Flash to the Chris who went down the coin magic path, the Chris who was really into sand art, all these divergent. (laughs) The difference was this was the time he said, you'll never do it. So then you had to do it. Exactly. Yeah. It was the, it was the, the, yeah, it was the linchpin of the multiverse in my life there. (laughs) And then it became a little father son competition to see who could learn to juggle first. My dad crushed me, absolutely (laughs) demolished me with regard to that challenge. But then I don't know what it was in my mind that just said, I got to keep after this thing to just like, he learned to juggle faster, but I can learn to juggle longer, I guess. <laughs> he beat you in the sprint, but you beat him in the long distance. Exactly. And then it turned out that by the time I got back to Tahoe, there was a uh, a fifth grade talent show, I want to say, that was being set up. And they asked us, oh, if you guys have a talent, you should enter. And I just hot off the heels of having just learned how to juggle three balls, like ambitiously said, I'll do a juggling show and a talent show in two months. <laughs> and then I quickly learned what I signed myself up for. And then I just kind of barricaded myself in my living room and straight up just learned as much juggling as possible. And then I put together a three minute routine to a song off of jock jams. I want to say it was pump up the jam. Sure. Sounds timely. Yeah, certainly. And then There was no winners. It was one of those participation situations, but I felt definitely like it set the tracks for me. And then after that, literally someone from the middle school saw me, like a teacher from the middle school saw me and said, hey, do you want to do a a half hour show for like for our students in like two months? And I had no idea that filling a half hour with anything takes so much energy. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then again, basically had these various islands that were thrown in front of me of like, you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And I just kind of like in my naivete kept saying yes and learned a bunch of juggling stuff, which led to becoming a, uh, I don't know, like a de facto mascot in Lake Tahoe where I grew up. Yeah, I actually came across an article about you and the 2002 World Championship of Performing Arts in the July 23rd, 2002 edition of the Tahoe Daily Tribune. So you were really a local celeb. And that was actually a little bit where Jack and I's paths started to overlap. Mm -hmm. By that point, I had done a number of solo juggling performances in Tahoe. And then I was like, I got it. I can't just hold this down on my own. I got to branch out. I mean, filling a half hour is brutal. (laughs) Sure. Well, that half hour I filled by myself, by the way. But then my technique became less like, well, I can only do like eight tricks, but let me see if I could somehow use those eight tricks on different props. And so I had my dad like build me a, I wanted to juggle off of a wall as if that was a cool thing. My dad built me a door, a freestanding door that was like propped up with like two by fours. And that was this huge, ridiculous, cumbersome prop that we had to like bring over in a pickup truck to the middle school just so I could prop it up and then turn in front of it and juggle against a door. It wasn't like a pane of glass so that the audience could see you juggle <laughs> up. You were just sort of facing away for a little bit or the side. Turned it 45 degrees, you oh, know, cool. get to see that cool. profile. So yeah, I think I filled like 10 minutes with that door. Yeah. Um, but anyways, after that point, I realized like, oh, I can't do this by myself. And so I ended up teaching my brother Nick, how to juggle, and then my friend Mike Callion, how to juggle, and then the three of us became the world-famous Tahoe jugglers. From that, we basically just kind of hit this 
circuit in Tahoe where we were doing birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, weddings, Renaissance weddings, street performing. I make Renaissance weddings its own wedding because they were very, very clear to us at the time. Like, this isn't like your normal wedding. This is, this is going <laughs> to be This isn't legally crazy. binding, just to be clear. We're not. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is expensive cosplay. <laughs> so even from a young age, Chris, you were a bit of a Renaissance man. Ah. Uh, you uh, certainly uh, yeah. certainly was <laughs> and at that point then we got an agent i want to say that was helping us like book gigs around town that ultimately was just basically someone that was around when we were doing street performing and saying like hey you want to have these kids at your party you know just like hustling while we were street performing which got us a lot of random gigs and then put us in i want to say it was through our agent that we learned there was this world championships of performing arts in LA, which ultimately was straight up just a glorified pageant, pretty much. I don't think this was a sanctioned Olympic event by any means. Did you win nationals or did you just <laughs> apply? We won entry by, I think, paying like $800. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, you know, it was the first time ever in LA. It was me, my best friend and my brother. My mom was there. We were just like living a dream, staying in this like hotel somewhere in Burbank using the convention room as like this performance space. And then we just like wore USA track suits and just kind of hung out at this hotel. And then we ultimately performed and won the variety category and the comedy category, the variety category for a juggling routine, the comedy category for a full on just rip off of a night at the Roxbury sketch. <laughs> now that's comedy, baby. Yeah, it's comedy, man. We performed then at the uh, finals, which had some celebrity judges, one of whom was a cast member on All That, which was a show that Jack was on. Uh -huh. And then uh, she and I became friends. And then uh, her name's Chelsea Brummett. We became friends. She invited me to visit the cast on set. And that is where I met one Jack DeSena. Whoa. Are we there yet on the timeline? Or do we have to zoop zoop back <laughs> to see how I walked the path to the... <laughs> Yeah, that actually transitions us pretty well, because while Chris was performing in the 2002 World Championship of Performing Arts, you were starring in a relaunch of the most popular kids sketch show of all time, which Chris mentioned earlier, all that. Yeah, yeah. So I was a huge fan of the original All That, which it was like a reboot, but kind of in sequence. It wasn't like it had been off the air for a while, like season six. Maybe a year or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like a year or two later, they just brought in a new cast for season seven, They did, but they did like a full recast because I think a lot of the original cast had sort of like aged out of it. Yeah. So I was a huge fan. I had started acting a bit in Massachusetts. I was doing like local commercials and such and and like, you know, school plays or whatever. Um, so I definitely was excited about that. It was a path I wanted to go down. But my family moved to Orange County, California for my dad's job, totally unrelated to the acting stuff. Oh, wow. It was totally serendipitous. I mean, like had your dad gotten a job in like Scottsdale, you would have been out of luck. Yes, I genuinely, this is a question I should ask my parents. I think it was maybe like dad was getting a promotion to run like the West Coast operations for this company he was working at and was given the option of like San Francisco or LA uh. or like the LA area. So we then went on like family trips to both. And I think I was probably being like, oh, that'd be fun, LA, whatever. I'm sure it had not nothing to do, but it definitely wasn't. So many kid actors, their families like move out there 
specifically for the kid. And it's like a whole thing. Right. That was definitely not what happened. My hope is that when you were on that road trip, you passed a sign that was up there and you're like, hey, wait, the World Championships of Performing Arts. Dad, they got everything here. (laughs) Some cool stuff must be going on around here. If there's ever a film about the two of your lives, (laughs) there would absolutely be that scene. For sure. For sure. For sure. 110% be that scene. But like tastefully in the background, you know, it's one of those like pick it up if you do. Yeah, yeah. And you'd both be on the highway at the same moment. Like Jack would be there. He'd already be living there. And then Chris, you'd be on your way from Lake Tahoe to the championship. Wow. Yeah. The cars would pass. You wouldn't even see each other. Maybe you'd glimpse each other through the glass of your cars. Well, I'm driving past his broken down RV in this. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Should we stop to help them? No. (laughs) Of course not. Not a weird juggler, kid. (laughs) Yeah, so we moved to Orange County, and I had been doing acting stuff, but my parents were, like, the most opposite of a, like, stage parenty thing. They, like, we moved out to, you know, a 45-minute drive from L.A., but they were like, nah, don't do it. Like, settle in. We'll, like, talk about that later if you want to later. We can talk about it. So I was just in middle school in Orange County because, I yeah, I had been fairly frequently, like, going to Boston for stuff when I lived in Massachusetts. So we weren't doing that, and then... Somewhere like beginning of eighth grade or something, my mom saw they put out like a big open call, like nationwide open casting call for all that. And she knew that it was like my favorite show in the world. So she told me about it. So I went to a couple thousand people like open call in L.A. And then it was like six rounds of callback because they were seeing like tens of thousands of kids nationwide. So yeah, I think it was like six or seven rounds. And then they started like pairing us up. They gave us sides of a scene. Which are like lines for a script, side script dialogue stuff. Yes. They gave us like a little script. Um, It was a character called Crazy Terry, and he was real crazy. (laughs) It was basically just a, here's two pages. Can you show like a a very silly, over-the-top sketch comedy, like range of emotions and just be flipping back and forth and doing all the quick turns and being just like a really broad character? They didn't introduce that element of it to like the third or fourth audition. The first couple were just bring in three one-minute characters. Which is like a pretty wild ask for (laughs) like the whole country's 11 year olds like come with three original characters. Yeah, that's like Second City stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, worked super hard on it and really was so invested. And yeah, six or seven callbacks later, it happened. At that age, Jack, were you nervous? Were you even processing it in that way as a kid? Or was it more exciting than nerve wracking? Like, how did you experience it? At that age, because for an adult, a process like that, getting through round one, round two, round three, and it goes from 3,000 kids to a few hundred kids to a dozen kids to four kids. Were you consumed with stress? Yeah, it was really nerve wracking by the end. It was like, great. It's like a bunch of network executives and the show's creators. And we're in a, a lobby with like 15 kids. Our cast ended up being like seven. But, you know, it's like it's not going to be 15 It might have even been fewer than that. It was a real, like, we were all meeting each other and getting really excited, but also at the same time, you go like, oh, but I don't know, what is this? And I'll say I was, like, pretty good at being confident going into the rooms. It was like sitting and waiting around. I I got real stewy. These are all things that amplified much more later in life. Like, pre-audition nerves got really intense for me at a certain point. And even just, like, performance stuff. Like I was a, I was a real, like I would throw up before every mm. play in high school and stuff. And so I think that was maybe already happening a bit um, at that age, like 
while waiting in the lobby, I would probably go and throw up. Yeah. But then once I'm in the room, it was like, all right, well, this is the thing I made. I'm going to just do the thing again. <laughs> uh, here it is again. Here's my rapping Irish nun. Uh, hope you like it. <laughs> <laughs> to listeners who either maybe don't have experience doing theater or performing or, or didn't do any of that as kids, like hearing something like what you just said, Jack, about vomiting or being sick before going on stage can sound really weird because someone might be like, why would you keep doing it? But I had a very similar experience because I was a theater kid as well in middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. Thank God I didn't vomit. But before I would go on stage, whether it was for a sketch or a play or a musical, like I would come very close to hyperventilating before I would go on. Yeah. But then I loved the act of actually doing it. It was the build up to going on stage where I was like, I'm going to bomb. I suck. And total imposter syndrome. I'm going to mess up. But then once I'm on stage, that electric feeling, and I imagine you're familiar with this as well, Chris, that feeling once you're doing it can be so addicting and so alluring if that's what you're into, that the um, the vomiting is just a price to pay. Yes. Yeah, it's correlated. At least personally, I feel like the level of anxiety that you have before is directly correlated to the amount of release yeah. that you get of endorphins at the end. So very much like that's the trade-off is like the anxiousness, the anticipation, the excitement. And then yeah, like you're saying, that electricity and that buzz, it's really like that's the lasting taste anytime you do performing. So that's the thing that you remember and convinces you to do it again. If they were flipped, I don't think we'd have a lot of performers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Afterwards, you feel like you want to vomit every time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nah, yeah, nothing. No, no, thank you. It's just like a movie. It can start with a weak first act, but the third act has to kill. It's true. I think it's the same way with the feeling you feel before and after performing. Yeah, I think that's a great assessment. I was also curious in hearing Jack's vantage point of like being the kid going in and being so nervous beforehand. It's like, in a way, it almost feels like getting sick was like the necessary threshold for your mind to just then go in with a vibe of like, like that's the trade-off is sometimes those things you want the most, you have to unfortunately give an impression like you don't need it or you don't want it. Right, right. Yeah. And then, you know, if you, if you went through the traumatic event of puking your guts out beforehand, you're at least in a room, you're like, well, at least I'm not puking anymore. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'm, I'm past it. And I think they did a good job. It's a really intimidating thing, but they also know it's an incredibly intimidating thing. And they're rooting for you, you know, like they're trying to find these seven kids to fill out this cast. So they, if I remember correctly, I think Dan Schneider, who was the showrunner creator, I think he like pulled each of us aside before and was like, everything you've been doing is great. This is why you're here. Just like go in and show them that. Let's just do it. You felt like we're on your side. We're rooting for you. Just come in and show us what you got. So by the time then I'm actually like stepping in, it was like, all right, cool, here we go. But before that, sitting in the lobby for like three hours while other kids come and go and do it, it was like, yeah. nightmare. <laughs> yeah. While I was prepping for this interview, I went back into the archives and, and watched some of your sketches from all that, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> you actually said that when you were on all that as a kid, you once had a couple prop guys smash breakaway vases over your head because you liked it so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> This is what blew me away. And again, like just from watching these videos, I never would have guessed that you were nervous because you were also a regular participant in SNICKs or for the uninitiated Saturday Night Nickelodeons on air dare segments. Yeah. For instance, you were put in a bathtub and covered in worms, <laughs> stuffed inside a giant punching bag and punched by a professional boxer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Covered head to toe in honey and chicken mash and pecked by chickens. <laughs> I don't even remember that one. <laughs> cool. This one was the most disgusting. You put a live scorpion all the way inside your mouth. <laughs> For sure did that. So watching you do all of this 20 years ago, 
really helped me realize that there's probably nothing you could do in your sketches with Chris today that would phase you, right? No, stuff like that. I truly, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, I'll do whatever on camera. It doesn't matter. And that was a real, like, at the time, the specific, like, on-air dare things. I think that came in maybe season two or three that I was on the show. I did, like, four years total. I think it was, like, season two. So it was already, like, we were a little more comfortable. We were in the rhythm of it. And then they told us, like, hey, this year we're going to be doing these interstitial, like, hosting segments for SNCC that are basically, like, Fear Factor gauge from us like wow i'm gonna really spoil some stuff here but they made it seem random who got selected for the things but they did actually we knew ahead of time who was gonna do what whoa acting yeah i had a feeling the lines that you were saying to each other although quite convincing as children actors like as an adult watching it back i was like okay these are very snappy lines and he's covered in worms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's either very quick off the top or... Hey, don't don't run. I, th- I think Jack, Jack could be quick. Hey, you know. I did. It's possible. Some of the reaction stuff they did want us just genuinely reacting. So it could be a mix. But they did, like, ahead of time go, like, who's comfortable with what, who do what. And I was like, anything. <laughs> I was like, I'm actively excited. And there were, there were a number of them that they had ways to basically fake. Like, anything where you were eating something, they would show the real thing and then they'd you know, make something that looked like it and we'd replicate it. But something like putting a whole scorpion in my mouth, it was just like, no, that's just real. That's just, we're going to do that. Wow. So I was signing up for all of that stuff. Did they de-sting it? Like, what what are they doing with the stinger in that? Yeah, they take the stinger off, but then I had to hold it by the stinger because they were like, it won't be poisonous, but it would still like- Move around. Stab (laughs) you. (laughs) So so I hold it by the thing and then lowered it into my mouth. So like that was real. It going into my mouth, me closing my mouth around it and holding it there was 100% real. And then there's a shot where they added a fake one with just then where it's like I'm hands free and just a little like stingers poking out. That was fake. Mm. But the initial like lowered into my mouth, closed my mouth around it. It's just oh. going to be in my mouth for like 30 <sighs> seconds. Then take it out was 100% real. The claws were like taped off. So that wasn't an issue. But the little feet uh. are real grippy. So it felt like a live animal like Velcroed my tongue. <laughs> it just like <laughs> right onto my tongue. It, it didn't then just like pop right out. It was like a little like, huh, huh, oh, huh, God. to get it out of my mouth. In a parallel dimension though, like I'm up in, in Tahoe or in my life, like you were kind of living and doing all of the things that any of us teenage boys wanted to do anyways, but you were getting paid to do them. <laughs> like the idea of someone being like, hey, put a scorpion in your mouth. I'd be like, I think I might do that. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially like the level of confidence in like, people who are hired for a day to oversee a simple thing on a set. I don't know if my level of confidence would be quite as high, but at the time I was like, this is Hollywood. Everything is perfect. (laughs) Nothing could possibly go wrong. Um, I had so much. And they did. They took good care of me by and large. And then the getting stuff cracked over my head. I was very into like the stunt type of stuff. I was really into like physical comedy and pratfalls and stuff. And so that was another thing that just like to the writers, I was like, yeah, if you want at any point want to like, if I need to fall down, if I need to get something smashed on my head, I'm I'm down. And so that would happen occasionally. And I just thought it was like very fun. And I think it was the first year I was there. Someone else got a vase smashed over their head in a sketch. And I was like, listen, if there are any extras, I would love to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> and the props guys were like, uh, we have to save them. But then at the end of the season, they pulled me aside. I'm like, listen, so we didn't end up using them. So like, yeah, if you want to. And they took me <laughs> wow. out to their workshop and smashed a couple of vases over my head. And it was like, I have... Uh, I got pictures somewhere. Uh, it was like a joyous, <laughs> joyous day. There was a lot of Hollywood dream come true stuff. There was like shooting the like main title sequence was so like, oh, wow, I'm actually part of the show that I grew up watching. 
we had a lot of like celebrity guest hosts. Um, so I was meeting a lot of incredible people who I'd grown up admiring and it was like, got a skateboard from Tony Hawk. So those were like, oh my gosh, Hollywood dream come true things. But legitimately, actually my like Hollywood dream come true stuff, like the stuff that I most as a kid was like, that'd be cool. It was the like, I just want to be part of it. I want to be in there making stuff. I want somebody to smash a vase <laughs> over my head. <laughs> this is, that was the real dream come true stuff for me. Some could say you were the ace of vase. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might cut that out, but <laughs> I couldn't resist. No, keep that for sure. I couldn't resist. I want all emails from Jack signed Ace of Vase from now on. <laughs> Ace of Vase. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get to college, uh, just one more thing about your childhood, Jack. Alongside sketch comedy, you also began voice acting at around age 15 as the character of Soka in the modern classic Avatar The Last Airbender. At least, I think it must have been around 15 when the unaired pilot episode was made in 2003. So what was it that drew you and continues to draw you to voice acting? I think some of the sketch background was part of the appeal of trying voice acting. I was really into doing silly voices um, and was getting to do that a lot while on all that. Um, so there was sort of a natural push there, you know, with my agents of like, hey, we can, you know, start sending you out for voiceover stuff. But it really was just like I just had agents and they also had a fantastic voice department. I had done a little bit of it. In Massachusetts, I had done a couple of like radio commercials. I completely blocked this out of my memory until recently. But I remember actually my first VO stuff was my after school program, Braintree After School Enrichment Base, had bought some commercial time on Radio Disney and took a couple of like the kids from the after school program to Boston to record it. And I got so into it that I made friends with the engineer and started just like emailing him pitches for Radio <laughs> Disney commercials that I could record. <laughs> wow. When I was like eight or not. That would be pure gold if you found those emails. Oh, man. I know. I wish I could find it. But it was just me emailing him like, okay, what if it's this like blues song, but here are the lyrics and it's about Radio Disney. And after a while of that, this incredibly nice band was like, yeah, come on in. Not these, but we could use you. for." <laughs> so I did a couple of like Radio Disney commercials. And then I started auditioning for radio stuff in Massachusetts. So then again, then I moved to California. Don't do anything acting wise for like a year or two. But then my second LA agent, after I had already booked all that, and after my first agent turned out to be embezzling, and I wow. part of a class action lawsuit, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood. My second agent's CESD, who I'm still with now, and I'm their longest standing client. They had a fantastic voice department and just started sending me out on stuff. So before Avatar, I did this uh, Disney movie called The Wild, which is like the least known, like it is a Disney animated feature, all of which are generally completely revered but this one <laughs> no one remembers <laughs> but i had a small part in that movie which has a very similar plot to madagascar so i know one remembers it but i did a small part in that and that so i was getting just really into this is really cool i would love to be doing more of this my agents were sending me out all listeners of the podcast please go watch the wild right now <laughs> flood flood the algorithm let uh, them be like wait a second <laughs> this is the cult hit we need a sequel it's ready to blow back up. Yeah, it was just a VO is incredibly fun. There's this thrill of being able to create a character, being able to like disappear into something. There's the ease and excitement of like you're in the booth, you've got the script, and when you're shooting live action stuff, the 
effort it takes to do a reset to get another take is massive. You've got like whole departments Mm -hmm. having to do all this stuff to execute. Like, great, let's go back to one. Let's whatever. There's just so many moving parts. Whereas like VO, you're there, you're in the booth working with the director. You get to just go back and try it again and try it again and try it again. And it's this very like easy, playful thing when it's going well. So I loved it immediately and was really eager to try to book some more and so I got a Cartoon Network pilot at the time that I was like, oh, this one's going to go. This one is going to be the show I'm on. And Avatar is like, oh, it's a weird little action thing. I'm very confused by it. It seems cool. And then I saw the Avatar pilot. And I was like, oh, no, this is, wow, this is something special. So that carried me into Avatar. Yeah, we did the pilot when I was in, I was like, yeah, 15 or 16. I was in high school. And then, you know, animation takes so long. And so much of Avatar was like hand-drawn in South Korea. So it was a long process. So most of the recording then of Avatar was like while I was in college at UCLA. And going back to that, <laughs> that story about you as a kid, like trying to audition for VO must have been back in Boston. Was it before you moved to Irvine? Yeah, I was doing some like radio stuff back there. I did a hood milk commercial. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it's just interesting to, to see how like the through line both in yours, Jack, and yours, Chris, your childhoods. It seems to be a through line for like a lot of kids from performing arts backgrounds or, or kids kind of in that mold. I have this memory and I'm just going to, to share it in solidarity. Like either Toy Story or Toy Story and A Bug's Life had just come out. And I was like obsessed with Pixar. And I was like, I think I could be a voiceover actor. I think I could do this. And I was like 13 or 14 at the time. And I grew up in the East Bay. So we were like 30 minutes from Emeryville where Pixar was located. Oh, there you go. So I asked my mom, I was like, mom, do you think I could like audition for the executives at Pixar? And my mom, not knowing anything about, you know, how the industry worked because we didn't live in Hollywood or have any experience with it was like, Michael, let's just drive down to Pixar and (laughs) (laughs) no joke. Maybe you can take a meeting. Yes. And so we drove to Pixar and we get up to the security gate (laughs) and it's just me and my mom, you know, there's a security guard there. And uh, he's like, you know, how can I help you? Do you have an appointment? My mom's like, no, we don't have an appointment, but my son is really good at voices. And we were wondering if he could audition for the next (laughs) Pixar film. And the security guard just looks at my mom like she just said that I'm an alien or something. And he was like, all right, yeah, "Uh, that's not how that works. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) I was a little sad that day. Yeah. So she took me out for like ice cream in Emeryville and we made a day out of it. Oh, I love just the bravado of it. I love that. That almost could have worked, I feel like. But sometimes that (laughs) stuff, yeah, that could have worked. The brashness of ignorant moms is sometimes so clutch. So I was in I was in middle school before I started doing anything in L.A. because we had moved. Like I said, we just like took a year, whatever. So seventh grade, middle school, there was like a talent search that came through my middle school and watched us do like drama class, basically, and was like picked me and two other kids and were like, you should be in Hollywood, kid. (laughs) And it's a total scam where they just like pay us like $3,000 and we'll introduce you to an agent and we'll give you like one acting class. And my mom feigned a ton of interest and called them and was like, oh, this is incredible. And like, what kind of agents, which agents do you introduce them to? Oh, you know, this one, this one, this one. And mom was like, amazing, awesome. We'll get back to you. And then just called all of those agents. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And just completely, yeah. Anyways, and that's how I got an agent who then embezzled. So whoops, it's a bad story. It turns out I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I did a similar route because in Reno, I want to say that I was like, quote unquote, discovered at a mall by one of those, like they had like a little, you know, (laughs) like next to the sunglasses stand, there was like a be a a star stand. They're like, you're a kid that looks to be like someone that is naive and 
come over here and yeah. here's how much headshots are in classes and just pay, pay, pay. <laughs> and my mom totally sipped the Kool-Aid with me and I'll never forget. It was the, oh, there we go. Cool. Let's just talk to dad. And I was so stoked. I was like, dad, I'm going to be a big star. It's just going to cost me $3,500. He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and let's discuss this. So uh, I want to say it was, oh, I don't even know. John Robert Powers, I want to say is what it was called. John Robert Powers. I was about to say the name. It's 100%. It's John Robert Powers. I'm, I can't believe it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a place called John Robert Powers. That can't exist anymore, right? Just like now kids know that, like, no, you get discovered by being on YouTube. Yeah, 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 yeah. Being on TikTok. I don't need it. Yeah. Um, that can't be the model anymore. But let's fast forward past your respective childhood traumas sure. with fraud <laughs> to 2007. So at this point, you're both in UCLA's student sketch comedy group company. Mm-hmm. You're doing an interpretive performance of Spider-Man 3 with sock puppets mm-hmm. for the school's annual Spring Sing, which is a nearly 80-year-old tradition that showcases, quote, UCLA's most talented students performing song, dance, and sketch comedy, end quote. Take our listeners through how the two of you first met and when you knew that the two of you had something that would endure all these years later. How about we start with you, Chris? I had been at UCLA two years before you, Jack? I want to say one, because you're two years ahead of me, but you transferred in, right? Yeah. So I, I was at UC San Diego my freshman year. I did a sophomore transfer to UCLA after a whole sidebar story about transcripts and whatnot, but it was all figured out, all good, ended up where I wanted to be. <laughs> and then the uh, at UCLA, really, because I think it's mainly because I got there a year later, I really came in with this energy of like, I have to maximize my time here. I have to like make up for the year that I missed. I'm only going to get three years here. Let me just pack it all in. And so at that point, I knew I wanted to do something in entertainment. So I was just like signing up for like any acting class, any film class I could. I was a theater acting or I was undeclared my sophomore year just to like decide between film or theater. I joined an improv group that was student run called Buick on campus. Bruin United Improv Comedy Craze. With a K. And that was just like a weekly, let's get together, let's just play Whose Lines It Anyway games, essentially. But started to make a nucleus of friends there in like kind of improv comedy. And then had been told by my buddy Sean, who is a good friend from Tahoe I grew up with, who was at UCLA the year I wasn't there. He essentially did this almost like had a scout mission of a year of like, Chris, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. And he was the guy that told me first about company, which as you said, is like the, essentially the SNL cast that introduces these musical acts and this like two hour talent show. It's like an annual event. It only happens one night. It's very electric. It's very exciting. And like the whole school shows up. I'm going to post a link to some of those sketches in the show notes. I actually highly recommend people check them out because it's an electric audience. I mean, People are going crazy for those sketches. Yeah. What was wild was that I had never seen Spring Sing before I even auditioned for company. I just like knew enough about it from people that had done it in the past and like their essentially like their vibes and what they were interested in. And I remember you auditioned, I want to say like three months, two or three months before the show. And there's weeks and weeks and weeks of like writing and, and pitching and rehearsing. And so I essentially auditioned for Spring Sing company my sophomore year got in, was thrilled to to get in, and then just basically was taken under the wing by some of the seniors that had done company for the few years before me. My superpower in that is that I was the guy that growing up got the camera. In high school, I bought the camera. I learned how to edit. I learned how to make little videos and whatnot. And a big 
part of company is like five or six of these sketches. You do probably like 15 sketches in the night, but our videos like really like, you know, they're going to be projected on these screens for an audience of like five to 7,000 people. And then I was the guy that essentially would came in and was like, okay, I'm not going to, I know, I know my place here, but I can be the guy that makes the video stuff elevate. And so from that, I, I was like the main director of the videos. I was like pitching on the scripts and whatnot. And then essentially did that spring sing sophomore year. And again, I'd never seen it until I was literally on stage doing it. As we've said, was like a rock star (laughs) comedian experience. It was, if you didn't love sketch or performing before that, if you're up on stage and there's 7,000 people that are like hanging on every word and just like, they're the warmest, kindest crowd. They just want to laugh at things. And all of the jokes are basically inside jokes about UCLA. It's an easy crowd. But just to be like, I'll see you in Ackerman Hall. Whoa! Ah, 7,000. You're like, I am a god. <laughs> it's like when rock stars will like be at a stadium in Boston or something, and they'll say the name of the town they're in. Yeah, exactly. And people just go, he said the name of where we are. This is live. You can't script that. <laughs> so what was really cool also was there were these celebrity judges that would come too, and they would be this like panel of like four celebrities that would be judged. The, the music acts. It was also this like roundabout, like Hollywoodizing of the event where Jason Alexander was in the crowd of my sophomore year experience. And my buddy Brian Singleton and I did this routine called Balls versus Ropes. And I was a juggler and he was a competitive Olympic jump roper. No joke. Look him up, Brian Singleton. At the time, we're like in company, we were all asking ourselves like, oh, who has weird talents? And then, you know, I sheepishly raised my hand about juggling. Brian sheepishly raised his hand about jump roping. And we came up with this kind of like turf war sketch idea, live sketch idea. Anyways, we did it. It brought the house down. I remember Jason Alexander gave a standing ovation and that was a real like life moment for me. No one else, but you could see him. Exactly. Just all five, seven to Jason Alexander, 300 rows back. (laughs) (laughs) That moment moment in particular in Spring Sing and Company really solidified like this is my happy place. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And these are the people I want to be doing it with. Brian and I and a, a returning group of a handful of other friends from that year really went hard on making the videos even better. Like Brian was really instrumental in helping like get a lot of the, the video stuff going. And this is me segueing into where Jack and I. So Chris's second year at UCLA, second year on Company was right when I had been admitted to UCLA because it's in spring, right? So there was an admitted students tour, welcome tour for the UCLA theater department. And I was there considering going to UCLA. It was definitely my top, top choice, but I was still like checking it out, scoping it out and saw people filming this very raucous sketch on what's called Bruin Walk, which is a sort of like the center thoroughfare of campus. It was some people filming something. There was a lot of underwear and Viking hats and pool noodles and confetti. And it was like, I have no idea what's happening. Um, But I wandered over to just like check that out and immediately recognized Chris because, whoa, flashback, flashback, flashback. We had actually met (laughs) two years earlier through Chelsea Brummett, one of the celebrity guest judges at the kids. uh, What's it called? (laughs) The World Championship of Performance Arts. World Championship of Performing Arts. And fellow cast member of all that. She then brought Chris by set and we hit it off. He was there for like a week or a couple days. I don't remember. And we just really 
took to each other immediately and yep. were doing a lot of bits. Like within the first day of meeting each other for some reason, and this is not a thing that I did outside of the Chris context. Same. But we were doing prank phone calls together. <laughs> we were in the green room of all that and somehow bonded immediately and just started doing <laughs> prank calls as a duo. But like tasteful ones. They were good. We were the ones landing on the joke. We were making fun of ourselves. Yeah, like we called an escrow service. And it was clear that I was a, you know, teenage boy calling an escrow service because I had mistaken it for an escort service. <laughs> yes. And so the whole call was like me kind of trying to see what was possible as the lady got to like, oh, honey, oh, honey, you're not. This is you've got this all wrong. This is not the right number. But it starts out perfectly because she's like, are you a buyer or a seller? <laughs> uh, buy, buy, buyer. I'm definitely a, I'm a buyer. Um, anyways, <laughs> so we were doing prank phone calls. And just totally hit it off and then stayed in a bit of touch. I'm very bad at staying in touch with people, but we stayed. In we were just basically instant messaging for a while on AIM. And then uh, then he was kind of ghosting me. But not but just because I don't like AIM. He got a lot of away messages, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, when you were online and every time you heard that door creak open on AIM, you were like, maybe it's Jack. This is the day. Yeah. Is this the day? <laughs> but little did I know I had to go to extreme lengths and <laughs> produce a ridiculous sketch video on campus at this exact day that Jack is considering going to UCLA. It was the easy tip over the top thing for me because it meant, hey, I've got a buddy here that I had no idea was going to be here. And he's already doing all the stuff that I was worried wouldn't be here. It was like, oh, it's a fantastic theater department. I'm excited about that. But a theater department isn't you know, necessarily going to be the place where there's an improv troupe and a sketch comedy team and all of that type of stuff. So while I'm visiting the theater department to then run into a buddy who's like, here's all the stuff you hope is here. All these great like comedy opportunities. It's here and I'm already doing it. And I can like introduce you to this whole side of this world. It was incredibly exciting. Also on that tour, Miles Marcico, who I had just been in the wild with. Anyways. <laughs> and my high school girlfriend was also going to UCLA. So it was all pointing there. It was a real lock-in moment of like, yes, this is where I want to be. I want to be in whatever that dumb thing over there is where people are screaming and throwing confetti. I'd like to go do that. And so by the time that that quote-unquote meet-cute, second meet-cute had happened for Jack and I. Your respective biographies are very much like the first act and a half of When Harry Met Sally. Right, exactly. <laughs> We're certainly trying to keep that alive. So far, the plot is uh, is still working out in our favor. We haven't had a big falling out yet. No, and we're we're gearing towards those couch interviews when we're in our sixties. And <laughs> right. So you're telling me that one of you has already sprinted to the other one on New Year's Eve. Has that already happened? Have we crossed that threshold? Absolutely. Every year. Every year. It's a tradition. <laughs> and so basically, Jack signed up to go to UCLA. He, you know, he reached out after you'd already started coming to school. We saw each other at the theater department. And then at that point, I was fully in with regard to like, I'm doing the company. I'm doing Buick, which, you know, was still improv regularly. I was juggling in the UCLA marching band. Yep. Jack is also a huge sports fan and football fan. So there was just a lot of like mutual overlap interests that then I introduced Jack to like the folks at Buick, the improv group, obviously encouraged Jack to audition to do company. All this stuff he obviously did of his own volition and, and skills and everything. Freshman year, I joined Buick, but I forgot to apply for spring sing. I sent in my application like a week late. They're like, yeah, we already did it. I was like, ah, shoot. <laughs> so I didn't do company That's my first right. Yeah, I didn't do company until my second year. But we were on Buick together. That's right. My freshman year. And then my sophomore year, we were running Buick together. And then I joined company and we did company together my sophomore year. Yeah. Yes. Essentially, during those two years where we were so in line with like our creative, not only just like the things we were doing, but it was also just like, 
it became very, very clear very quickly and probably from the very beginning of just how quickly we clicked comedically. But a lot of our comedic vibe, the various interests we had and also just kind of like our interests in movies and genre and creativity in general and how we conceive of things, how we talk about things. It was so enriching to talk to each other to where it was like, yeah. it was truly like a rabbit hole where we could just kind of spiral and spiral and spiral and talk for ever. And that initially took shape in encouraging each other to pursue their passions, giving notes on each other's scripts. If you're working on it, just like really being more like best bud support system creatives. And that first year I was on company, I was definitely like looking to you for guidance because you were the vet. You'd done it for two years. So we ended up writing a number of sketches together for company and kind of also became like cleanup guys together. Like if somebody else's sketch was going to be in, but it needed some work, we were like, we'll get in there. We'll punch up some jokes, whatever. Just really, really took to writing together and supporting each other's separate work really quickly. Yeah. And then essentially at the end of my senior year with company, we, by that point had like created a nucleus of like five or six of us from company that kind of came together as like, oh, this is a group that we all creatively spark with each other. Let's keep the momentum going. And so had already looked ahead to what's our next thing, you know, beyond college, knowing some of us were still in school like Jack, but then we decided to make a web series where we kind of pooled our collective talents and we made a show called Dorm Life, which was our first foray into something outside of school and essentially like a mockumentary set on a college dorm floor, which we had all a lot of experience in. Yeah. And then at that <laughs> point, it really started to get like, that was truly the transition point that show into like taking it seriously, as seriously as you can, comedic writing and bits and and seeing what it could turn into and then Jack and I like working together more and more on that, that then from that point forward, we were still kind of in our own lanes and then, you know, came together on some like side projects, some sketch things. But it wasn't until about like five or six years ago that when we really, you know, laid it down to formalize, let's be a partnership and make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Quick aside on dorm life. Life is so strange sometimes. So back in 2012, I had just written a, a short film about this couple who was going through the end of their relationship. And I was looking for like the right actress for the role. It needed someone who really had some serious acting chops. But I didn't want to go through the whole audition process because I'd done a bunch of that in film school. And I was like, I just want to find someone through like a friend connection or someone who knows someone, grab a coffee with this person and see if we connect. And one of my friends at the time, a woman by the name of Laura, was like, my friend Hannah has been acting since UCLA. You should reach out to her. So she gave me the email for a woman named Hannah Pearl Utt. And Hannah and I exchanged some emails and we, we set a, a coffee date to meet up and talk about the script. And at the time, I was like, I'm not auditioning her. I'm just going to talk with her about like how she works as an actor. But I got to find some of her performances online, right? And at the time, in 2012, I think she'd been in like a couple short films, but the vast majority of what she'd been in up until that point was dorm life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I find myself, it's crazy, like looking back at it now, I was just like watching dorm life episode after dorm life episode, like <laughs> through the Britney prism only. Exactly. I was yeah. like, well, <laughs> yeah, this is a drama I'm making, but she seems like she knows her stuff. But yeah. Scraping it. Just a crazy small world. <laughs> that is hilarious. What a cool small world experience because, yeah, I mean, and she is the like beating heart of the show in many ways, like the straight man to everybody else's chaos, you know, mm -hmm. was a very formative show for all of us and such a ridiculous thing that you guys had connected. It seems like that show, it had to have been a kind of practice for what Chris and Jack 
the YouTube channel eventually became years later. And I'd love to transition to that in just a second. But I imagine just that schedule of producing so many, basically what are, you know, short episodes of TV, like between five to six minutes in season one and seven to nine minutes in season two, 20 episodes in season one, 26 episodes in season two, sponsored by Carl's Jr. Thank you. (laughs) But that must have been a real gauntlet for the two of you in terms of the relentless grind of film production. I'm glad you bring it up in that capacity because that absolutely was the 10,000 hours. Yeah, yeah. That and some projects around it because what it did was it was an insane production ask on a schedule standpoint, not only from the writing and pre-production standpoint. As with most production, you have less days than you need, but you're going to have to figure it out anyways. This one was like half the days we needed and we had to make just creative choices on the fly that allowed us to somehow pull this thing off. And then... A lot of people don't realize the post-production process on that show. Also, like I edited all those episodes and that was a two-year chapter of my life while I was also working full-time and editing on stuff at this production company that produced it. And so what it did for me, at least, was like I was on the edge of a mental breakdown pretty consistently throughout the whole process of that. And I think (laughs) I somehow made it through unscathed for the most part. What it did for me, I feel like on the post standpoint, it was my like, you can't run a mile under four minutes and then someone does it. That was the thing of like, oh, you can't edit these things or you can't turn that thing around that quickly of a quality. And then with no other choice but to do it, that was the time where it kind of like at least reshaped in my mind what was possible for very little money and what you can do on your own with your own craft if you just kind of like really don't listen to what folks say can or can't be done. And that really carried over into, yeah, at least I hope it did, into what we do with the Chris and Jack stuff because, you know, a lot of what we do is extremely ambitious but goes through the filter of very few people. And dorm life taught us that you can still get a lot of bang for your buck, so to speak, with just trusting your creative energy. Yeah. It also established that Chris and I, there's just so many tiny, tiny decisions that go into anything you're filming like that. And there are a couple of important skills there that I think we were able to like find our version of them together, like being able to communicate quickly about those things, being able to communicate thoroughly And like a willingness to go very thorough. Like we're just both people who like when we're in there making that stuff, it's like I'm willing to parse any very minor detail that you think is going to hurt this or help this. So that willingness to like get really narrow, go as far as we need into a conversation while being quick about it and liking each other the whole time or as often as possible. Finding that you click in that very specific communication setting like we just couldn't have done the later stuff if we hadn't built it up there, built up that skill together and learned that we liked communicating with each other about that stuff is what made it seem possible. Right. Okay. So as you were saying, Chris, I mean, obviously you and Jack were collaborating between the time dorm life ended in 2009 and the white room debuted on your YouTube channel in January of 2016. So what was it about that moment in mid to late 2015 where you guys looked at each other and you're like, all right, we've been, collaborating on and off for the last several years, but why don't we start a YouTube channel together? So what was that moment like? And how did the white room idea, which went viral pretty quickly after it came out, how did that idea come to be? How did the collaboration start? 
So I think we sat on it for a little bit. I think we had shot it. We sat on it for a year. We shot it and then we had the footage for a year, which is crazy. Yeah, because I was on a a different Nickelodeon show at the time. And it was, you know, I just like I had signed a contract with Nickelodeon and as like a courtesy of just like, hey, there's like morality clauses and stuff. Like before I start like releasing a bunch of web content, I just want to like check with the talent department and make sure they're cool with like me making this stuff and whatever, because we were talking about fully starting the sketch channel at the time. And so it was like a courtesy conversation with them. And it was like clear that no one was going to be rude to me about any of it. Everyone was very supportive, but like it would be a thing where it's like, oh, we'd be kind of running stuff by the talent department each time to just make sure nothing was inappropriate or whatever. So it just was like, ah, why don't we wait and sit on this for a second until this show that I was on a time called 100 Things to Do Before High School until that ended. And then we were like, great, now let's start doing it. But the inciting incident for the channel is actually a video that came out later on the channel called Movies in Space. And Chris can speak to that. We'd both been on our individual paths. Like post Storm Life, I worked at at that same production company that produced it and was like kind of working on social media, short form content. And then ultimately got where I I left the full time there and then kind of got back into auditioning, got pulled into Blue Man Group. Blue Man Group became my life where I was off on the East Coast. I was traveling. I was having adventures for a few years while Jack was fully pursuing the VO stuff and his acting and voiceover career while we were still supporting each other and keeping each other, you know, just like actively writing our own things and and keeping a conversation going. Yeah, we were like reading each other's scripts and yeah. And when I was out on the road with Blue Man, I found myself continually being called. I just kind of always felt this feeling of I'm I want to go back. I want to give filmmaking and writing and performing another shot in LA, I had the space to kind of like come back on my terms a little bit where I was like, I've got some a a bit more of like a cushion, I've saved up some money, I can come back and really give this like a focused shot. And in doing so, I realized like, if I'm going to come back after having been gone off the map for a few years doing this, you know, wild, but incredible show and job for Blue Man, then I have to have something of relevance recently. And so I wrote a short film that kind of was spurned from being knee deep in all these like, film structure books. And it just kind of this short came out of me, which was a structured movie about movie structure set in space. It's kind of how I describe it. (laughs) It's kind of how I describe it. This logline I've uh, really memorized. (laughs) That's kind of how I describe it. The logline I've had in my head for about uh, uh, eight years. (laughs) I, so I had this script, I saved up some money. I came back with the intention of, I want to, I want to make something that I directed, I produced, I acted in, I edited and I wrote. So it's like, here's straight up a single calling card for all of these different potential branches of like getting the career reignited on film stuff. And so in doing that, obviously I like was asking notes from Jack and asking, you know, all of like just advice on thoughts and punch-ups and whatnot. And then there was a point where there were characters in it and a character in particular was like, Jack, obviously, would you play this character? Do me the honor. Would you be in it? And then more conversations came down the line. There was a point where there's basically an entire alien race in this short and then it was pitched at a point that maybe jack play all of the characters in the alien planet i do believe i pitched that but not for the selfish desire to play so many characters but just narratively it's about sort of sameness and whatever and it makes more sense you know it was (laughs) we're talking about movies in space the short it's on our channel and this was one that i had written the script for and was just kind of like starting to put the pieces together this was 2000 probably would have been 14 2014 yeah And then essentially, once it was all coming together, I 
produced this short. We shot it over like six or seven different days. It was pretty expensive considering, you know, trying to do all the work myself, but we still like shot on all, all these crazy locations. We went up to Northern California to shoot like the alien planet set at Mono Lake, which is a place I always pass driving from LA to Tahoe and filmed a bunch of locations practically in LA. Anyways, finally got all this footage. And then I rented an office in LA. I was editing that while I was writing a couple spec scripts to hopefully use to get writing jobs. And then once it was coming together and I was ready to like start submitting it to festivals, it was so clear in doing movies in space and in how coming back to LA, it was clear like, oh, I missed this collaborating with Jack and, and our dynamic and how fun that was. And it was kind of great timing for both of us because in coming back, I really wanted to really dive deep and give everything I had 110% into just like making things again. And then we'd long whispered about starting a channel together. But at the time, it was also making sense for Jack, where you were wanting to kind of get more creative autonomy. And Exactly. I was on a Nickelodeon live action show again, which I have loved every incredible opportunity I've had there. But it also made me feel like, right, cool. I'm doing a lot of strictly acting for higher stuff. So I wanted to make sure I was also giving myself kind of the more creative outlet outside of it. It was a conversation that we'd been circling for a while. And then the like film festival tour, like taking this around to film festivals and just having like over the course of a couple months, like three or four like trips together to cool cities where we're hanging out, talking about film, meeting all these other filmmakers for like a long weekend each of those just kept reaffirming like, yeah, we should be doing this. We should do this. We should be doing this. We should be making this stuff. We should be doing a lot of this stuff. We were in such a echo chamber of just our own minds that then to like finally share something and have this like this direct reflection of people really enjoying what we were doing. We're like, oh, there's something here. And at that point, we decided like, let's give a channel a shot. Let's start putting out some sketches. Maybe we'll use them as like links that we can share as we pursue other things. But like, let's try and release a couple things. At which point then it was stockpiling like a handful of scripts. So it was like we kind of met a few times to brainstorm on some ideas. I was coming by that office. Yeah. You rented. I was hanging out. We just like kind of laundry listed some premises and some ideas. We were refining our kind of like sketch writing process at the time. But we kind of just gave ourselves assignments to go off and give first passes at these like fun premises and ideas. And we'll keep throwing them back and forth just to kind of like pick ones that made sense. And then the white room happened as like a script. I think it was an idea that I took up to Tahoe for uh, a weekend or something like that. And then just like literally stream of consciousness wrote that thing. That's one that uh, if you've seen it and if not, check it out. It's a fun one. It's a very fun sketch that is really then made anew by its ending. And that was one where like we talked about the premise. I'm like, yeah, that's fun. Give it a shot. And the ending did not exist until Chris just sort of <laughs> sat down and spit it out. And I was like, oh, well, that's a, that's great. We got to make that. As a first sketch out, that was a type of thing we really like to do, which is sort of a what we talk about as like sort of an alts vehicle of a sketch where it's a sketch where like there's a really clear premise that we can write alt jokes for where it's like, here are all the jokes. And then we can also just write 30 more and we shoot them all and we see which ones can plop in there and we can do a lot of improvisation and see what's going to fit in. That's a sketch where it like had this skeleton structure that made it very easy to slot in and out different ideas and different jokes. So that was a really fun one off the bat because it got us working that muscle of getting to play together. In them. Totally. Once we had that script and we knew like this would be a good one that's first to shoot because it's like it was also not very expensive and we were able to like pull together a ragtag group to make it happen, still paying out of pocket to make these things. And for our listeners, if you haven't seen the sketch and I'll link it in the show notes, the concept is basically that a man 
wakes up or comes to only to realize that he's sitting across a very tiny table from another man who tells him that he's died. And he's in this, what appears to be a gigantic room that is all white and totally empty except for the two chairs and the table. He proceeds to ask this man sitting across from him a series of questions since now he's dead and he's sitting across from someone who has all the knowledge in the universe. And what's really interesting about what you said about comedy sketch endings is I feel like probably after coming up with a great concept, it's harder, if not the hardest thing about a sketch, right? Because it's one thing to come up with a great concept, a great premise. That's hard enough on its own. But I've seen so many sketches in general, just online, or even, you know, some of Key and Peel sketches, right? Which have amazing concepts, but then it's very hard to figure out how to end it in a way that is both true to the concept, but also like sticks the landing in a way that elevates the concept as a whole. That's very hard to do. It is. It's way easier when you start with that. And sometimes you do. Sometimes the idea has like part of what you're excited about is and then there's this way to flip it at the end. But a lot of times, yeah, we are just kind of going like, and then we need a good punchline. Let's make sure we find a good punchline at the end there. And we have some like fallback filters that we can run it through. Sometimes we're like, oh, as the thought experiment, what's the biggest? um, We use the term dick punch. I'm sorry to say that out loud. But we're like, oh, what's the biggest dick punch we could do? Which is like, guy holds his arms up in celebration. We think he's won. And then someone punches him in the dick. Right. This is not a happy ending. What's the most like kind of surprising deflation flip we could do? And then also the other prism we'll run through is like, what's the most kind of surprisingly positive thing we could do at the end? And then sometimes you come up with an ending that works, knowing that you can then build all the hidden setups for that back into the sketch. We'll have the sketch and then we'll go like, cool, if we want this sort of really positive flip or really deflating dick punch, how do we kind of make the stakes for that as clear as possible throughout the sketch? How can we plant little setups for that throughout? But it is like sometimes two full phases of the writing process. It's like, let's write the sketch. Great. Let's write the ending. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Another prism, we put it through like another test sometimes is like, it can be a happy ending, a sad ending or a, a dick punch, or it can be like a satisfying conclusion that can have its own surprise sometimes. Because I think a thing we really challenge ourselves to regularly is like people will remember an idea for the premise, but they'll hopefully stick around for like the surprising relationship story. We really like to give more character roots and like a relationship you're kind of rooting for or a unique adult relationship that you haven't maybe seen put through this prism before. And so oftentimes we also like the feeling of, oh yeah, you know, that felt whole, that story yeah. felt like, oh yeah, you you came for just like a dumb little heisty montage thing, but the dismount is kind of like a awe moment between like two male coworkers, you know? So I'll say too, how narrative our sketches are does make it easier to write endings because we are generally writing sketches that are very premise driven and plot forward. Um, which is not always the case in sketch comedy, right? Like a lot of fantastic sketch comedy is just like, here's a very funny character that is, you know, a lot of the classic like SNL and Mad TV, you know, you think of like the target lady, right? That sketch is the target lady is at the checkout counter and she has this very funny way of interacting with people and you kind of get a parade of now somebody else comes up and she interacts with them. Now somebody else comes up and she interacts with them and she doesn't change. Just there's different comedic beats of how she expresses her thing. But, that's very difficult to end because you just kind of like it's a sketch composed of mini episodes of the sketch. You just kind of do her routine three times. You escalate it a little bit, but she's not going to change and there's not going to be some big plot progression. 
that's a very common type of sketch comedy that is not quite what we're doing. And so these more like premisey plotty sketches do kind of want to have an ending, want to have something surprising, want to have narrative closure, want to have these characters who are going on this relationship journey find a satisfying conclusion. Well, and I think what the target lady and a lot of SNL kind of recurring character sketches do, which I really think your channel can't do. It's not a weakness of your channel. It's like so many of those SNL sketches where it's like a character the humor is with them interacting with whoever the host is that week. And whoever the character the host is playing is some kind of variation of someone who's going to react or act weirdly off of yeah. Target Lady or, you know, any one of the other kind of rotating cast of characters. But your sketches are either <laughs> sometimes rooted in slightly modified versions of yourselves, like the July 6th Park series, which we'll get to in just a second. Yes, thank you. It, do, it does mm-hmm. take a bit to roll off the tongue. Um, but uh, <laughs> so smooth. It's like butter. Thank you know? you. you know, it's interesting looking at your sketches, some of which I've seen multiple times. You know, I don't want your egos to get too big, but they're high quality. No, please. As long as the view count does, baby, keep cranking yeah. that up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to look at them through the lens of how are you going to end them? Like the dick punch, right? Like, It makes me think of the Deja Vu sketch or Groundhog Day through the lens of the dick punch, right? Mm -hmm. Let's uh, pivot to Groundhog Day. Have either of you read Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew? I have, yes. Okay, because one of the big things about that book that was really inspiring to me, I read it right after I moved to LA, but before I got into film school, is he was talking about how he made his first film by basically leveraging all of the existing either talents or locations or people, like anything that he already had in his life, he would leverage into his first film because he just didn't have any money. I mean, he famously like subjected his body to like, you know, random medical testing just to raise money for it. So he's like, I know someone who owns this car. So that's going to be the car the villain drives. I have someone who has a blue vest. So the hero's going to wear a blue vest Mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things where he was just pulling from his life to up the production value on what was really a a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. And so I think of something like Groundhog Day, which is something that just jumps out where it's like, Chris, you're able to leverage your decades of juggling (laughs) into the premise, which is basically this guy reveals that he has been experiencing the same day over and over and over and over again, just like in the movie Groundhog Day. Is this something I'm guessing that you both leverage constantly in your sketches where you're like, okay, we have access to this location or this person or this prop. Is that something that you're still to this day kind of thinking about when you're ideating sketches or do you ideate from an absolutely pure place and then kind of walk backwards into it and think, okay, now that we have this idea, what do we have already existing in our lives that we can use to up the quality? How do you go through that process? Both, both. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say starting out the channel and starting out anything, it's always hardest to get the boulder rolling. And once the boulder's rolling, then stuff starts to get a little easier. So when we were starting, it was leveraging everything, especially on movies in space. It was like calling in every favor, putting up my own money, doing everything I possibly could. But what starts to happen and what started to happen for our channel, and speaking of, you know, White Room success, we made that sketch. We sat on the footage for a year. We created the channel the day that we posted it, somehow got to the front of Reddit. That's how I saw it. It went viral that day. And literally, we posted a link first thing in the morning. And then by that night, Jack and I were cheersing cocktails having just gone viral and we're refreshing. Yeah, refreshing. The- it, was, it was insane. And it was like, then the world was asking like, what's next? What's the next sketch? And we, you know, had pocketed a couple premises and scripts and stuff. Essentially, I guess I'm getting at like, it required a lot of the two of us to start things just from our own, like leveraging our own skills, leveraging our own money, our own props, our own locations. And then what starts to happen once you've like made something, even if it's not great, oftentimes people start stepping out of the bushes 
to help a little bit because it's the hardest part is being the one to get something going. And then if something starts, then people want to be a part of something. Especially when you're in like a collaborator rich environment, like post-college or you're working in, you know, we're already around this comedy space or whatever. When you're in a place where people kind of know you in that context and then you step out and go like, hey, I'm doing it. Yeah. And so we really lucked out because a testament to some of the earlier stuff became like links that we could share with friends or people that we were hoping to collaborate with. And then we became very, very fortunate in our kind of like our Rolodex of people that have skills and talents that wanted to prove themselves or have something that they could make that would be more fun for some of our directors of photography that have these incredible cameras and these incredible lighting senses and see what we love to do. They see collaborating with us as almost like an opportunity to like break away from the routine of them shooting commercials all the time. It's like, oh, come over and play with us where we're going to be super open and collaborative and you know, you're going to elevate our stuff. We're going to hopefully give you something very funny to work with and play with. So sometimes there's that retrofit of like one of them going like, hey, I've got this piece of equipment I want to use. Do you have anything that would kind of get to showcase this? Yes. And sometimes we'll write to that. And then other times we'll be sitting on Well, sometimes we'll write sketches just because the idea hits us and we think it's funny. And then we'll go like, this is something we can make with stuff we have. Or this is one that we're going to stick in a drawer and just kind of keep throwing out to the universe like, hey, and then one day when we randomly meet a person who does that thing, we'll have that sketch that it would be perfect to utilize that skill. Um, so we have a couple of sketches that we wrote not knowing if we would ever be able to make them because we didn't at the time have the means. Two quick examples. We made one called True Friendship, which was essentially like an Indiana Jones-esque kind of video play that we realized like, well, we wrote this with like booby traps and like a cave and like in a cave <laughs> we're like this one probably won't this will be a shelved one and then it was like a few months later we had become by that point there was the youtube space la that had some sound stages that you had a youtube channel that over a certain subscriber count you'd have access to some of these spaces for free and we'd always check these emails that would come out every month to see like what was available and there happened to be some cross promotion with the movie alien covenant Mm. where they had an alien covenant set recreation from like david's little like workshop cave michael fassbender tinker in in there and it had a bunch of like alien iconography that basically were like we shoot our thing in like six hours but then we go in there and we took all of the signs of alien out the first hour was just us like scrubbing out all the face huggers yeah exactly and then we shot our thing that looked like oh this is kind of like a cave and we made it work and then we put all of the alien iconography back up again and it just looks like the most expensive thing imaginable it looks like we built this incredible set which was wild and then another example is the art of the heist which is a sketch where it's the heist crew preparing for some sort of like mission And then they're going over this scale model on a table as you do before you break into the third act about like, you're going to go in here and then you're going to throw flashbangs there. But our artist friend uh, has some imposter syndrome about quality of the model, the quality of the model. (laughs) And when we wrote that, we knew like, well, neither of us can make these models properly. And there has to be like a bad one we could make, but there's got to be like a pretty well-made scale model. And we had all these jokes and then we were like, another one that's shelved, like, that's a fun idea, but we don't have the skill set to make this until 
But we had one friend. We were like our friend Darcy Prevost, who is now an incredibly accomplished set designer and art director, does a ton of Jim Henson studio stuff. She's incredible. We were like, we can shoot one email to Darcy. And if Darcy wants to do the sketch, we can make the sketch. And if Darcy doesn't want to do the sketch, this disappears. There's almost no other way we could ever make the sketch. So stuff like that, where it's like, we have the idea, we'll put out the one shot feeler or we'll just have the antenna up for whenever we find a cave set, we'll make that sketch. That's a thing we'll allow. And then there are other ones where it's, we know what we have and we write to it. And that combination allows for sort of like different creative sparks. It's like, if an idea hits you that you don't think is possible, it's okay. It's a five page sketch. You can write it anyways and chalk it up to like, well, there was an afternoon wasted, no problem. Or we definitely want to make something and here's what we have accessible to us. Is there an idea that comes naturally out of that? Like that is also possible. And some of them too, like can be quote unquote put in the drawer because at that time it seemed like that's the only way that premise could work. And then later give it some time and suddenly like, oh, it doesn't have to be in space. It could be a Western, but it still have the same right. joke. Same comedic game. It just, we've transposed it over here. The other version of that, like what resources do we have available as a creative spark is each other. Like when you're talking about Groundhog Day and like putting in the juggling joke. That is a thing we both really like to do. What skill of yours, either practical skill or like performance skill, comedic skill, can I show off in a sketch? What can I like write towards? So we do that a lot for each other. We'll go like, hey, this is a character that you do that I think we should find a vehicle for. Or will the robots let us live was definitely a like, how can we build a sketch vehicle that gets at Chris's and Blue Man Group and has this unbelievable, like is genuinely my favorite physical comedian, Chris and Bill Irwin. That is good company. I will absolutely take that. (laughs) Uh, So it's like, let's write something that utilizes that. This is one version of that physical comedy that you're phenomenal at. This like stillness, this robotic style that sort of uses some of the Blue Man skill. Let's write towards that. Let's build around that. That is a different source of creative spark that comes out of knowing each other really well and being able to look at sort of our catalog and go like, hey, it's been a while since we've done a really character-driven sketch that shows off this type of character you're good at. That's a real fun execution that comes through in the like more off-the-cuff, looser stuff that we do too, like the July 6th Park World, the Wormhole Monocle, where we also know each other so well and like certain nuances of just us as people that turning those like some of our natural inclinations up like 15 20 percent is also something we write (laughs) towards too like i know yes jack makes me laugh so much when he is in a character place that he is just trying to keep things together barely but is showing the cracks like that kind of a character that jack he just wears it so well of a guy that like tries to keep presenting as if he's tough and keeps it all together but behind the scenes things are just in shambles I'm literally editing a sketch right now as our next one, and I'm losing my mind. It's just like a showcase piece for Jack, and it is so, so funny. Well, there was something you said a few minutes ago, Chris, that really it reminded me of a, a quote from Chris Rock. I just want to share it with the listeners because I think it's apropos. He said, quote, I'd always end up broken down on the highway. This is before he became famous. When I stood there trying to flag someone down, nobody stopped. But when I pushed my own car, other drivers would always get out and push with me. If you want help, help yourself. People like to see that, end quote. It really relates to what you were saying earlier about how, and especially in Los Angeles, this is a little inside baseball for our listeners, but it's very easy to talk a big game. It's very easy to talk about what you're doing next, the project you're about to start, but it's an entirely different thing once you see someone actually start something and they're like, oh, this is a real thing and it looks really cool. It reminded me of that quote, Chris, because I think Mm. it's so true and it's not just the entertainment industry. It's really almost anything in life. When you see someone starting something and it already has locomotion, 
the chances of other people coming around to help just increase exponentially. I love that. Even within our thing, I mean, movies in space is that, right? Like he built the track to get it started. And then once that was happening, I was like, man, this is great when things happen. Let's do it. So we do that externally, but it also even internally, it was like, yeah, it had to be one of us pushing a little harder to get that momentum built in the beginning. It was, yeah. Chris is incredible. It's funny to trace locomotion in that way too, because we all have the, like, I have my sources that force me to like, want to move back to LA, wanted to get things going. Cause the other friends that I had were doing these things. Right. Jack and I internally too have built structures where like we capitalize on momentum between ourselves and how that just continues. And it, it's a thing you're always faced with, or at least in my experience, but it's also just more fun to make things too, in some ways and not just wait around. Absolutely. And you know, one of the through lines I feel like I've spotted in your sketches back when I first started film school, my editing teacher said something in our class that really stuck with me. He said, have you guys ever noticed anyone pay for a drink in a bar in a movie? And we all were kind of like scratching our heads. We're like, no, I don't think I've ever seen anyone pay. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they just get the drink from the bar and they walk away, right? And he was commenting on how, I'm sure you gentlemen know this, but the term for our listeners is often known as like shoe leather. There's just stuff that happens in real life that you just cut from a movie because explaining it or showing it would just slow a movie down to a crawl, right? You want to keep things moving very quickly. You got two hours Mm -hmm. or two hours and change to get in and out. So you don't need to see the guy pay. Just get the cocktail, walk back to the date, move on, right? But it seems like a lot of your sketches linger and examine the absurdities in movies. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's the moments between the montage, the art of the heist, that just the, the art of the heist, like, because you'll have people in these heist movies standing around a diorama and you're like, who made this? Yeah. <laughs> or like in English, please, even your whole life is a TV show, right? Which is kind of a riff on the Truman Show. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're both really fascinated with the kinds of things that happen in movies that we all generally tend to wash over because if we were to linger on them for too long, the movie would be six hours long. But it seems like you mine a lot of stuff from that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You've hit the nail on the head because as comedic writers, at least for us, like a lot of our conversations, oftentimes after seeing a movie or a TV show or stuff, like we make each other laugh by also just pointing out like strange things or what if that happened or isn't that also weird if you notice this happens in that thing why do we accept that why is that a thing so we we (laughs) we definitely like like thought experiments and asking little questions to kind of make each other laugh in some ways but really get to the root of like who decides on these rules in what we decide on storytelling yeah how long were they standing behind that door waiting to come (laughs) (laughs) exactly And so a thing we really love to do is genre play in our sketches, which essentially is like playing in the movies we recognize from like a specific genre that are like look a certain way and feel a certain way, come with a certain bag of tropes, a certain rule system, like a sci-fi movie feels a certain way and usually has certain things that happen in it. Mm -hmm. A rom-com feels a certain way. A Western feels a certain way. So we like to like, just as fans of film are drawn to movies that, that are like big and sweeping and oftentimes like live in a certain genre. And for that reason, to explore kind of the things that then we might not have seen as often in those corners of filmmaking and also help us a lot comedically within sketches in general, because a lot of times when we start our sketches, you kind of have to ultimately start in a place where you let people know very quickly where they are and what's going on before you get to the joke. And oftentimes, like if you're watching a movie genre or something that looks like it's straight out of a sci-fi movie, 
it's a little less you have to explain to the audience as to like who these people are and what they're up to, because in a way you're kind of telling an audience you're in a sci-fi movie and they're already then in their mind carrying with them all of the expectations of a sci-fi movie. So we can start to undercut those like we do in moments between the montage. It like sort of allows a universal language Not that we never do it, but we don't necessarily go to like very observational. This is a thing that happens every day in life that everyone's accustomed to. That's like a type of comedy that people are great at that I don't have that skill set really. Instead, we're using the visual language of these films as a universal. We go like, oh, we've all watched the same heist movies. So when I show you 15 seconds of this type of a sequence from this type of heist movie, then we're all on the same page. And it is like oh, we all know what it's like to be on Instagram and be scrolling and whatever. It's the same sort of like universal experience we're able to tap into. Like you get where we are, you get what movie we're in. Now we can play with those expectations and flip off of them in an exciting way. Yeah. Another through line, I guess you could say that I see in your videos is just a constant self-imposed need to continue innovating and pushing yourselves. Whether it's the 12 days of Chris and Jack, where you posted a new video (laughs) every day for 11 days leading up to Christmas, a video on Christmas, and then a live stream that day from opposite ends of the world. Movies in space, like you mentioned earlier, Chris, which, you know, features dozens and dozens of versions of Jack. Space Escape, which was a VR 360 series, an animated short that the two of you were working on, I believe you mentioned in a recent live stream. That's right. Yeah. It seems like you use your Chris and Jack channel not only as a way to get your talents out there and make great sketch comedy, but as a vehicle to continuously push yourselves. Because if you wanted to, you could just kind of keep making the same kind of sketch over and over again, which is not an unpopular thing to do on YouTube. Right. Mm -hmm. You guys get really weird, really experimental. You really get out there and it seems like you're using the channel as a way to stretch your muscles. Part of that definitely comes from the way we started doing YouTube was we wanted to be making these movies. We wanted to be making these films and viewed YouTube as a great place to put them and like point people towards like we viewed it initially as like this is a portfolio place without being as much someone who came up in YouTube and wanted the YouTube language and viewed it as YouTube for YouTube's sake. It was much more like, we want to be making this stuff. This would be a cool way to share it with people. So we continue to be chasing that element of it, the portfolio piece, the like, what have we not made before that we want to try out, that we want to stretch ourselves with? Absolutely. It's a shared joy of making these and also strokes individual pursuits and excitements too. And it's definitely like, we see the channel as a holistic experience. We've long wanted people to be able to dive into any of the things that we've put up there and hopefully want to hang out and click on the next thing and click on the next thing. So there's certainly like a filter of when we think about what we're going to make next. It's not only to challenge ourselves and try something new, but it's also for our audience to experience something new from us that hopefully will like contribute to the larger patchwork of the channel because in a way it does, yes, offer opportunities or like, you know, be a portfolio piece to show a link to someone for a potential future job. But we're so fortunate to be able to kind of paint in there and make our paintings. And we treat it as like craftsmen that are going in there and spending hours on the mundane and trying to make each of them of a certain quality, even though they may be so different feeling. There are some hits for people, there's some clunkers for others, but we definitely like give each of them the same treatment with regard to how do we make this stronger, funnier? How can we challenge ourselves in this moment now to like try something we haven't tried before? Because truly a lot of why we're doing it is for the joy of it. 
And sometimes, you know, we chase that feeling less than we chase the like, cool. All right. So Groundhog Day got (laughs) this amount of views because it came in at this runtime and we should check the analytics and make sure that we never, as you probably can see from the variance of our view counts, we never chase that game, but somehow we're still able to play in, in the sandbox, which is what we definitely like do for the joy of the game. Yeah, trying to give different flavors to each one and having the like internal goal of like, they don't all need to be the smash hits. They all need to be somebody's favorite. Mm. We need to make sure every sketch will at one point get approached by someone and go like, you know what my favorite is? This one. And like, it does work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that has happened. We're like, I think every sketch at some point has been like, my favorite's that one. Some of them are surprising when they're people's <laughs> favorites. We have our own votes. Just having that prism of like, we're doing this thing. Let's make sure we do this thing as well as we possibly can and load it to the gills with as many jokes. And we hold ourselves to the like, how is this going to be worthy to be next to these other ones that we already are proud of and really fine tune each of them with uh, a lot of effort. We take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, gentlemen, it is rare when I find myself towards the end of a recording and I feel like I haven't wrung all the juice out of the questions I have, but I have so much left in my, (laughs) I have so much left. I mean, the Kickstarter where you raise 30K, the Patreon you have, more of your experiences in Blue Man Group, your podcast about podcast pilots, which you've now done two seasons for, sketch collaborations with other YouTube creators like Jack and Dean, the fact that you write scripts together and go on vacations together. (laughs) Chris, the fact that you have an electro-funk band that you're in with your brother Dom called Non-Funkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so many other things that I would love to talk to the two of you about, but I would love to have you both back on in the future because you two are some of my favorite sketch comedians on YouTube and just from this conversation seem like all around really great fellows. Aww. You too, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I really do mean it. And to yes and something that you said, you know, you've been collaborating with each other, you know, since your mid-teens and you've had this channel together for the last seven years. So I guess my question is, Where do you see yourself going next, not just with the Chris and Jack channel, but as collaborators, as creatives working together, where would you like to go next? Either ideally, if like I could wave a magic wand and say, all right, Chris and Jack, you can do work together, getting paid to do X or from a creative standpoint, I know you're working on that animated series. Where else would you just simply like to push yourselves next towards the end of 2022 and into 2023? What we talk about so often for Jack and I as a duo is really exploring more in the longer form narrative stuff. Yeah. We really, 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 really want to make a feature. It's time. It's time. (laughs) We want to make one that is essentially an extension of all of the skills we've honed and the people we've worked with to like just balloon it out and, and do something longer that can be a feature and or a series that we could go and maybe self produce the pilot but definitely have big ambitions of continuing our skill set in what we've been playing in this short form sandbox into something a little longer. Same thing of like how we came together, where it was like being those sounding boards for each other, supporting each other individually, and then coming together to make stuff together. That's a thing we want to continue to. We love like pushing each other on individual pursuits while we're building up for that vehicle feature and all of that. So all of it. <laughs> Well, this was, like I said earlier, guys, this was really fantastic. I could have easily made this a four-hour episode, but Mm. (laughs) out of respect for your time, we'll have to wrap it up here. But again, would love to have the both of you back on. Yeah. Huge fan of your work and highly recommend anything you do to anyone listening today. So again, thank you for your time and thanks for a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for having us. This was awesome, Michael. Thank you. What a blast. 